Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Special guest, um, very, very, very special, uh, Eric Richter um, from the band Christie Front Drive <laughs> and the 101, <laughs> Golden People City. People feel like that, you and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I want to quickly say how this kind of came about because, like I said, I, as everyone kind of knowing from this podcast and, and Ray and I meeting through music, I was into this music and just went to shows and... Uh, randomly, I don't even remember when this was, uh, maybe 2002, I can't even remember, a friend that I had um, knew that I was into Christian Front Drive, and, sh- and she knew you, and we went out to a bar, and I remember hanging out with you, and uh, you and I remember me obviously nerding for a while, but then asking, what record were you listening to that got you to make the music that was Christie Front Drive, and you told me Buffalo Tom. What did I do? I bought Buffalo Tom records the next day, and then however many years later, um, you're playing the reunion show at, at the Bell House, and I go up to you and remind you, and, um, and obviously you're super nice, and went and chatted, and I said, hey, we should hang out at this Jeff Bridges thing. Your girlfriend did not believe us. Oh, yeah. Um, and I said, no, we're oh, going yeah. to go to the Lebowski Fest. So anyway, from that to have you on the podcast and have you DJ one of the emo nights. It's just great to have you here and I'm excited to kind of chat about the old days. Oh yeah, me too. I love the old days. <laughs> I find them better than the new days. <laughs> no, I, just, I don't know. They just seem better because I was young. But um, I would love to kind of the sort of the formation and I mean sort of the you know the five minute story on just Christy Front Drive and the scene in Colorado and we're going to get to a lot of stuff from that, but I just really like to be kind of hone in on that and how that kind of came about and where you where you came from to start that. Wow, um, that's a big question. Um, I just basically, I mean, I, I was just obsessed with music from a kid to the point where, like, my mom was very worried about me as a kid because I was obsessed with Kiss, and you know, and this was like, I'm this is preschool, you know. That my, I had an older sister, and her friend lived across the street, so they were introducing me to Pam that Kiss, and I was like, when I was a kid, I was just like, holy shit, this is the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, these guys are wearing makeup, and like, you know, and like, they're kind of like, the, at the time, it's funny, you know, because when I go back and listen, I didn't realize all the sexual windows they were doing, and you know, like, but I just thought they were the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. And, you know, I was hanging up kiss posters on my wall, and, um, and then I luckily, I luckily came at age at, at time that, you know, 
I was kind of at the beginning of MTV, too. So, like, I would sit around at home as a child and watch videos all day long. You know, like, whether it be, like, David Bowie or even Michael Jackson or, like, I wasn't a huge Michael Jackson fan, but I did enjoy the videos as a kid. But um, I remember being really excited when Death Leopard came on or, um, you know, just, like, you know, there was so much stuff. And then, you know, as time went on, like, MTV actually had a lot to do with it in some odd way because it was, like, such a great outlet for a kid in the 80s when they actually used to play video, you know, that, like, you would see so many different artists. And uh, that's kind of basically how I came into, you know, in contact with a lot of music. And I still listen to a lot of it. In excess, I still to this day love in excess because I just remember watching those videos and they were so fucking cool, you know, like, um, but just, and also just wrote great songs, you know, to me. Like, and that's the thing is, like, my thing is, like, I love a great melody. And a lot of these bands, you know, there was a lot of great bands in the 80s just wrote amazing melodies and um, stuff that would just stick with you all day. But, but I was so obsessed with MTV at one point, I could actually almost like predict what videos they were, they were going to play every hour because they became so uh, formulaic. Formulaic, I can't talk right now, but... Pronounce this word for me, Tom. <laughs> what? Formulaic. Yeah, I'm really bad. Yeah, thank you. But, um... <laughs> I have, a, I have a hard time with that. I used to see photography for a long time. But, um, and it was actually from the back of a Duran Duran record. But I, I, I just grew up, like, obsessed with music, you know, to the point that uh, it's all I thought about, you know. And once, uh, you know, then all of a sudden, like, you know, you had, uh, what was the metal show? Um, Headbangers Ball. Headbangers Ball, which was, you know, there were different versions you know, like maybe early on, and even in Denver they were. But then, the, and then we had, uh, you know, Sunday night when you'd have the. Uh, it started off like the IRS Cutting Edge. Do you remember mm-hmm. the IRS Cutting Edge? I do not. You see, and if you like, it, the first like independent like you know like it was like this indie show was like called the IRS Cutting Edge, and they would play Cure videos all night, and and it's the whole time I was watching MTV in that time period. I was, just, was exposed to all these amazing bands, you know, like the Cure and like. And then they would even start getting into, like, early Britpop. And it was just, every time you'd turn on the television, you're like, holy shit, I've never heard of these bands before. You know, like, from all over the place. Like, you know, the Trash Can Sinatras and Ride and Swerve Driver. And it was fantastic. You know, like, and that's kind of where I came from. I just was obsessed with watching bands. And, like, just really into, like, just watching. Like, I just thought it was such a cool thing, like, my whole life, you know, from an early age. I, I think you. I think you. Oh, sorry. No, no. You're perfect. Because I, I think I think you hit on something that is insanely important. Because I mean, uh, Tom and I are uh, of an age where I mean, we were both. We remember Headbangers Ball, but I think something that was you know, big for myself was like 120 minutes, it, which is oh, yeah, exactly. Which was like, I'm it, sorry. It, I'm not cutting you off. Go ahead. Finish. No, no. It's fine. I mean, it's exactly the same. It served the same purpose where it was like. I remember, you know, one night it's playing Rage Against the Machine, and then, you know, the next night they'd be playing My Bloody Valentine, and it was like, you know, your musical palette, uh, while at that very moment I liked Rage Against the Machine way more than I liked My Bloody Valentine, but it, it just exposed you to Yeah, it just, uh, it just exposed you to a lot that, you know, now and it's like... What, uh, and 120 minutes was like, is what came out of uh, that IRS cutting edge. Which I guess IRS was money and MTV at one point, but like, there used to be like, that was what that turned into. 
and then have that Adam Curry guy with the mullet come on and start like hosting it. That um, yeah, that's exactly it. Like I mean, 120 minutes was huge because that was like all these bands that I fucking love. Like I'm using like Super Chunk videos and Dinosaur Junior videos and you know Firehose videos, and it's like holy shit, this is the best show ever. How, how did know? that? How did that kind of transition you into independent culture at all? Or was that just kind of, you know, outside of that? I don't know. Independent culture, like, that was another thing altogether because, I don't know, I, I think it just happened to meet a few people that were, like, kind of turned me on to that. Um, my cousin was a huge influence on me in a lot of ways. So I went through this, I went through, a, I went through every phase of, like, music. I went through, a, you know, a, a stretch mental phase where, and, there weren't really phases, but I still actually listen to all the music. I still listen to Testament and, like, Fire Records, like, all the time. It's not like, once I like something, because that's one thing I don't understand about people. I don't understand how you could like something and not like it later. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you either like it or you don't. And then I still like all that stuff. But I had a cousin that, like, brought a Dead Kennedys record over to my house, you know, and I was like, holy shit. And I remember that, and you also brought it over the first uh, Minor Threat, you know, like the... Not the seven inches because we were too old. Yeah, you know, I mean we were, you know, we weren't old, young enough for that. But I remember hearing the first Minor Threat, like you know the uh, the one with uh, his brother on the cover, um, Ian the K's, and I just being like, holy shit, this is fucking insane. <laughs> you know, like this is like I'd never heard anything like this. You know, and uh, and then from there I bought my first copy of Maximum Rock and Roll, and then started getting into everything, like started getting into Nike Breakgun and all these other different bands and. You know, it's just like a progression. If you're really interested in music, you'll just follow it, you know? And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a never-ending roller coaster. It's like fun, you know, to me. Like, you know, I just love, you know, and fortunately things have gotten, like, less fun lately. But as a kid, I felt like I grew up in a very interesting time of music, you know? You know, like, there was just so much shit going on. You couldn't even, you couldn't even fathom what was going on at the time, you know? Like, minor threat. So like even the Cure, like there's so many great bands. I mean, there was and this huge in between the two. I mean, there was just so much in between, you know. Like, and I just love music so much in general, and like I was, I just was taking it all in, you know, like a like a fat kid at a at a buffet. <laughs> but you know, that was my did, whole thing. I died. Did, did you did you always know that you wanted to? Uh you know, kind of playing a band after you became exposed to that? I was I was into the idea of being in a band. Like, I used to put on shows in my room as a kid, you know. I either, it started off like I wanted to be in Kiss, and I would do these shows. I'd put on Kiss records, and I would, uh, you know, pretend I was in Kiss for a while. Um, I, then it turned into, like, I remember hearing the papers. I remember when Train Captain Japanese came out, and I was like, I went out and bought that record, and I was into the whole record. I didn't realize they were ripping off the jam the whole time, but um, it was just kind of big. But, yeah, I was always, like, I always wanted to be in a band. But now that I'm in a band, I realize what I was thinking at the time was, you know, was completely, like, made no sense, you know, when I was a kid. But my parents bought me this Buddy Rich drum set, and I would sit there and play, like, anything from, like, Steve Perry, like, you know, we're trying to figure out the drum beat is that Steve Perry song, the, uh, Oh, Sherry, you know, like, and just, you know, anything I heard of MTV at the time, but, you know, I was just constantly obsessed with music, I guess. And that's kind of where I got to the point, and I've probably gotten off the subject, but, like, that's kind of where I got to Chrissy Front Drive, because I was just constantly trying to 
just play music in some way. And then we had such a great team in Denver that, like, we just kind of ended up, you know, you just find four people, you know, three other people that want to play music with you, and just whatever happens, happens, you know. I guess that's the answer to that question. I'm sorry, I went way off. No, no, no. I mean, um, I went too early in the beginning. No, no, like that's I, fine. No, I think no, that was awesome. It I all just... started my parents who wouldn't take me to the circus. You know, like, <laughs> well, I think just when you you know meeting the other guys and starting it and and going when you guys met and all right, this is what we're gonna do. This is what the band is. Take us back to that time because now, I mean, honestly, like so many people, even when I got into you guys, you were you were already broken up. Um, I had maybe known oh, yeah. about you for six months and then I realized you broke up and. I think a lot of people have that same experience. So I think at that time, in that moment in Colorado, like meeting those guys, what was the feeling and how did that come about? Well, Chrissy Frontier came about from, I went to high school with Ron and Jason. They were younger than me. So they, I, you know, I always, when you're in high school and someone's younger, they're not as cool, you know? So like, they were like starting these little bands together. And I was in this band the first band, remember the band they heard me in was, I was in a band called Lillawatt and a band called Turnkey. Was, I was in a band with older people um, that I met from, I, actually the first band I was in, it started because I wrote a, and you know, back to this kid in Maximum Rock and Roll, who, uh, this kid Steve Revit, who was like one of my best friends, um, just wrote like, I'm into Bad Religion and Green Day and blah, 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 and like, let's start a band. So um, I was just... That's awesome. A lot of it, Maximum Rock and Roll was, like, huge. I mean, like, at the time, like, I just saw this ad in the back, and it was just like, oh, Kid in Denver wants to play music. So we started Little Lot, and then we started this other band called Turnkey, which was a complete Drive Like Jehu ripoff, because that was right when the first Drive Like Jehu record came out, and I was like, we're doing this. You know, like, whatever they're doing, we're doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, those bands broke up, but then... So they were like these younger kids, you know, I, I probably graduated at that point, but like, do you want to come over and play? And we're like, I was like, okay, and I'd come over. Like, I need some place to store my aunt anyways. Um, and we just started kind of playing because they, they were really, they really wanted to be in a skate rock band for some reason. Um, I remember that. And um, it was, I thought it was cute, you know, like their little band was cute. And, um, and they always, for some reason, maybe looked up to me because I was older. But so I would go over and jam with them, and then eventually, like, we just started writing songs. And um, they had started another band with Terry, who was, um, you know, the bass player, obviously. And he just showed up one day accidentally because he thought they were supposed to be practicing and showed up and was like, what the hell's going on here? You guys have another band? I was like, no, we're just practicing, you know. Like, he was actually kind of pissed, I, I felt like. But we're like, you know, because he was a guitar player, but I'm like, we have two guitar players right now, like, grab the bass and play with us, you know? And that day we ended up writing, like, three songs. And and just, it was like one of those, like, magical moments where, like, holy shit, we should keep doing this. You should just keep coming over and we'll keep playing. And that's what happened, you know, basically. And then all of a sudden, we, we pretty much had that first EP written in, like, you know, probably, like, two months, you know? Like, we were just sorry sorry to interrupt but like how no, it's interesting it's interesting because you guys since like you said the the goals you know you didn't collectively come together being like hey we would like to sound like you know bands a b and c it sounds like you had 
sort of, you know, an idea. And then the other guys kind of had an idea, like, how did you arrive at the sound that you guys did? Especially just because... Well, yeah, go was, but we were listening to the same stuff, though. Like, I mean, at that time, we were really... You know, I was really into Super Chunk at the time and um, Jawbox. I was I was I was always buying because I went to this big lookout time like this. I was one of those lookout kids where I bought anything that came out of lookout from the early like Sam I M stuff, um, even like Jawbreaker. I remember I got that as a for Christmas gift right here. And um, so like, but those but Carrie was definitely something that came from the outside. I was like, I totally I I know the bands too and. Um, and we started like this off the deck. Cause I think a lot of like our first shows, we would even play covers. Like we, there was a, band, a great band from Portland called Cracker Bash. And, uh, we covered one of their songs and we actually did a super chunk song, one of our first shows, but we were just really into that type of music at the time. Cause at the time it was really a great time for that type of music, you know, but like when the first super chunk, cause I remember someone telling me, go buy the no pokey for kitty record. And I remember, like, being blown away by it, you know? Like, it's like, holy shit, this is a fucking great record. And, and uh, Carrie actually was like, have you ever heard The Archers of Loaf? And I was like, no. You know, like, and then I remember hearing that, like, whoa, you know, like... Um, so we we were all on the same page in that way. Um, so, you know, it was easy to, like, come up with the sound, you know? Even though it was really, like, when I listened, when I listened back... It didn't really sound necessarily like those bands, but we were, that's where we were coming from, you know. Just all like, you know, Lookout Records and Discord and um, whatever band was cool at the time, you know. And we thought were cool at the time, you know. Silkworm. Silkworm is another one. But, uh, so yeah, so it was just lucky. We, just, we were on the same page, basically, and just started writing songs. I mean, it's so many. I just, you know, I was kind of thinking back because I knew you guys had the anthology CD, but all those kind of came from those seven inches. And, you know, one of the seven yeah. inches you guys did was with Jimmy World. Um, uh-huh. And obviously that's, you know, a great thing to do early on. Um, you know, well, they we, weren't that, you know, at the time they, they were, were like a punk band. weird band from Arizona. Yeah. yeah and, and actually when we first heard them, like when I first time I heard them, they, were, they sounded like no effects. Like, they were like... They were like an LA punk sort of thing, like but in Phoenix. But um, but then they changed their sound and they then they just became amazing. But um, they, we met them on our very first tour because uh, Jim and his friend were decided that they were booking shows in Arizona and we sent them the first 12 inch. Like can we play, can we play. You know, back then you would send the 12 inch out. Like please give us a show. You know, because we want to go on a tour. You just book your own. You just book your own tour. You just call people up. And be like, uh, so you figure out a path. So like we're going to go through Arizona and then up through California and to Portland and come back home. And you would just keep calling people like, can we please get a show in the city this night? You know, and you would just keep doing that. But at the time it was easy for some reason. Now when I look back, but Jim from Jimmy World is one of the, one of the people that was like, yeah, we're fucking shows in Arizona. Um, when I met him, he had like hair down to his ass. And, like, <laughs> it was, you know, he was totally different awesome. too. But, uh, um, but you know, but that's what you would do back then. You would just call people and then you'd jump in a van, you'd buy a van, put your music, your gear in the back and you would just go, you know? And, uh, it was fun. I mean, it was a fun time, definitely. And then that's how we met those guys. How, I think, I think they slowed down because of you. I think, what? I think they, they stopped being a punk band once they saw you guys. 
it's possible because Jim was a really, really big fan. Jim loved us, and like was, and I think he liked the fact that we were softer, you know. And because um, when we first met them, Tom was a lead singer, and um, that was, you know, it was we was a different band altogether. Not that it was bad, because I actually really like Tom's vocals, and like when they play live now, I love him Tom sings. Um, but uh, yeah, for some reason, like there was some switch with the vocals, or like Jim, like was more kind of like maybe listening. I don't know. I, I tell you, I can't speculating what they were thinking at the time, but I remember just all of a sudden Jim started singing and they just slowed down. But they, one thing they did do was like, they were doing what we were doing, but better, you know, and we noticed it, you know, like, fuck, <laughs> a little better than we are. <laughs> a lot better. And then, uh, you know, did you whatever. Meet, did, you remember, meet the, did you meet the boys life? Or, I mean, if you saw another Jimmy World thing, I just, I mean, the same thing with boys life, like same meeting up. Was it the same, like sending out a record and then, no, Boys Life was Boys Life sent us a record, and because we used to like at one point all of our friends lived in this warehouse in downtown Denver, where we would set up shows, and we would I mean like, basically we just let because it was a warehouse that was like kind of set up already for shows because whatever like older band in Denver like had, you know this the generation before it set up and they built a stage, and at one point that scene was kind of burnt out and like we. My friend Steve Rabbit, who was I was in that band with Willow Line Turnkey, he found that place and he's like, "What well, is this great warehouse?" Where like actually there was living spaces in it, so you could move into it, and there was a stage in the back, and then we just started doing shows there, and it became you know people. It's got some word of mouth, and then one day we got a inch by this band called Boys Life from Kansas. Like we like to come play in Denver, we're like whatever. Yeah, we'll throw you on the show. We'd never heard them. And I, I remember that night, actually, because everyone at the place was like, holy shit, <laughs> these guys are really fucking good. I remember that, especially because the whole place, you know, was like, this is this man's so fucking good. And we just became friends at that point and um, decided, you know, like we started playing shows together and like, let's just go on tour together, you know, because then they heard us and we jived, you know. And uh, it was just one of those. But they, they actually came to us. Um, and they were just, they were fantastic. Like early boys like shows. That's one thing I, I, uh, anyone who's into emo, the people who've never saw early boys life shows are, are, uh, missing a huge part of it because that was one of the bands that was like, holy shit, but something, something's happening right now, you know, and it's really good because they have this, like this weird dynamic of just being soft and loud and just blew people away. I mean, when you would see them live, you're like, you literally just like, I don't know what the fuck just happened, but I'm fucking, you know, like I'm blown away right now. It's like being beat over like a the head with a two by four when you saw them early, early on. Just unbelievable, you know. And to this day, I I would love to go back in time and see them live again in that time period. You know, just fantastic. So like we became friends with them, and then they got hooked up with Crank. But that's another story. I mean, later on. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't this, want to keep talking. no, I love. You know, come on, this is like yeah. this is like emo gold. Um, you know, I think. I mean, was was, um, when you saw Mineral for the first time, was that something the same thing where it was like a record, or was it you guys were in Austin and? We were in Austin. Um, we happened to play this. Like, we were actually not in Austin, we were in Houston. There used to be an, the, the club Emos. There used to be one in Houston and one in Austin. 
And the mineral thing was just a complete random thing too. Like we just happened to get booked on the same show. Um, and not even like for any reason, you know, like we didn't know each other. It just, we showed up to this club in uh, Houston because we were just doing one of those, like in one of our weird little tours that we had set up. We were just getting the man and like lose money basically. And, you know, cause we were like 20 at the time. We didn't give a shit. And, um, <laughs> And um, we show up to this club in Houston, and we start, you know, replaying. Like, they're like, there's this band, actually called Mineral, and I remember just watching them, like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like, what was that? And even, like, Carrie, like, we ended up putting out their first record, and, like, I mean, but they were just, they were, there was another situation. But the, the funny thing about them was, like, they had nothing to do with the scene we were a part of. Like, they they had this kid that they called a manager. You know, like, they were like, this is our manager, Jeff, or whatever his name was. And we're like, well, you guys have a manager? You know, like, what the fuck is this? You know, and like, you're like, why do you guys need a manager? You're playing like shitty clubs in Houston. Um, and they had no idea that like there was like this punk scene. Um, they were really just like, we want to get a major label and do well. And I, maybe, I mean, I'm only speculating because at the time they seemed like they were just somewhere else. But we're like, there's this kind of scene that you guys don't know about. Like, you should go on tour with us because you guys are awesome. And, uh, and I, and sure enough, we took them on tour and like every time we'd go out with them, like people were just like, this band's amazing, you know? And, uh, they just kind of like, I think we helped them onto that, like getting in, introducing them to the, the punk rock sort of like circuit, you know, that was like, you know, the butcher on fucking live stuff and the maximum rock and roll. But uh, I remember, yeah, they were fucking awesome. Like, that was one of the only bands we played with. Because we would play the weirdest fucking band, you know, like, all the time. You just show up and, like, we play with bands that sound like, you know, the, the Crash Test Dummies. And, like, oh my God. <laughs> we get up, you know, it was, like, like that all the time. But then Mineral was just like, man. And I remember Carrie, especially, our, you know, the bass player, he was just like, I'm fucking starting a record label. The first record I'm doing is Mineral Record, you know. And we actually released that first, or Carrie technically did it. Um, that actually came out on Hotfield later. Um, we were just like, we love this band. So we just go on tour with them. And, uh, and, and sure enough, they got huge. Because I knew, like, I knew that the people I knew were, were going to love them, you know. And they did. You know, and it, to, I actually to, think they to, got bigger, bigger than us eventually. To... When when you say uh, like when you say huge, um, because like Tom was saying, like I, I, I'm I was never able to see you guys play live. Um, like so, what in your mind, like what was huge back then? Where it's like you know, like, oh, was, like, that's funny because that's funny you mention that because like it really it really wasn't like I mean that was like if you can get like a hundred people to show up to the show, you're huge. You know, like, okay. It was in like you know we were playing in people's living rooms and shit. You know, like a lot of our shows are in basements. And and just like whatever, like they rented out a BFW hall, and like if you can get a hundred people to a show, like you were considered like big at the time, you know, like because we were we were completely tuned out of anything that was like pop culture, you know, like it was um, we just had this whole little our own little scene, but you can tell like you know if you had a bunch of kids with backpacks show up to your show, you know, with like you know catches on them and. Uh, you knew you knew you were doing well, you know. Like it was, it was strange, you know. And that was with Chrissy Frunchide, you know. We got into that scene, and that's kind of where we were coming from. But it was all because of Heart Attack Magazine too. Heart Attack Magazine was huge, like Instigator and all of that. 
Hmm. Interesting. I, ne- I I had no. I mean, I, I'm familiar with Heart Attack, and obviously they helped, especially being from like I'm I'm from Southern California, and so seeing how they how you know, Heart Attack. You're from California. Yeah, I am from California, and seeing how ebullition okay. and Heart Attack like really helped develop that scene. I had no idea that they played a part in kind of developing the oh. emo-ish stuff. We would not be talking about Crazy French Ride right now if it wasn't for Heart Attack magazine. There is no way because we had this. We had this one good review in that magazine. Um, we just happened like we would send because we would send our record out. Like and the guy who put out, like I have to give credit to the guy who put our record out was this kid named Paul Kane from um, Denver, who was very into the punk scene. Like he even got more crust, like into crust punk later. But um, he would do everything. Buying the book punk rock, like we're selling shit for four dollars. There's no like we're not fucking people over. I'm a huge fan of Kit McClard. I mean, so we sent our record to Heart Attack, and we got this amazing review. We just happened to get to this one kid who was like, I love this record. Because it could have, like, that type of thing, it could get to the wrong kid. You know, like, when people are reviewing your record, like, they have, like, a few people reviewing. Like, you have some kid who just wants to listen to nothing but hardcore. If he gets your record, he's going to be like, this sucks. You know, like, it's so easy for that to happen. Because it's just, you know, because music's subjective, you know. So we have to get this one kid who's like, I love this record. And he wrote this, you know, just a beautiful review about it. And literally, like, a day later, everyone was calling us. You know, like, you guys have to pay play at our place. And after that, it was easy. And it was all because of that magazine, really. Because um, everything just turned. It was like that night and day. Because we weren't playing in, we literally were playing in people's living rooms like their friends. Like, there'd be, like, 15 people there sitting on a couch watching us. I remember that happened in San Jose, California. We show up and, like, so, let's go to the show. And, like, like no, you're playing here in the living room. And uh, and it was just these, you know, 15 kids sitting on a couch looking at you like, yeah, yeah you guys are okay. You know, like, and that was the... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, um, so, that's so funny because now it's, like, you look at, uh, you know, like a basis of comparison, like alternative press, like obviously that's like one of the largest music sort of publication okay. that's, that's around. And I, I could tell you for a fact that, you know, even if a band gets a glowing review in that, it's not like their career turns around, like how you were able to kind of <laughs> pinpoint that for the Christie front drive. Well, yeah, that, that scene too was very, it wasn't as big. And so like, it was a very small amount of people. And, but like, it was actually at the same time, like big, like when you really look at the whole country and like where it was reaching, it was actually, it reached pretty far. Right. And there was a lot of kids with the same ideals at that time. And, you know, I don't know if I bought into the whole thing, you know, like, cause we were always like, well, we just, we happened to be doing well, but I, I didn't, I didn't agree with all of it because a lot of the kids seemed very like, uh, I don't know. They were just not like posers, you know, like, like I felt like we got big at one point because people told people we were supposed to be good, you know, like if you got a good review heart attack, then everyone, everyone thinks you're good, you know, like, and it's not like, it wasn't like everyone listened to records like, this is fantastic. I think a lot of people just like, Oh, heart attack told me this is a good record. So yeah, it's a good record, you know? Um, and which is weird with music. It's like that all the time, you know, like looking at pitchfork is like, the complete, like, you know, realization of that idea. Like, records don't do well unless it gets to, like, a 
making this amazing Pitchfork review. But, you know, who gives a shit? Like, really, some one kid at Pitchfork loves this record, so it's going to get huge, you know? If you get a good review of Pitchfork, shit opens up. And I think maybe Pitchfork is like the the heart attack of, um, you know, the corporate world in a weird way, you know? Because if that makes sense. Oh, that makes total sense. I hate Pitchfork. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just personally, I just I I, I I agree. It's just this one review and and one one instance, and unless you um, and if and if you don't get it, you're forgotten about, and um, mm-hmm. and it's like it's tough when I used to have bands ask, you know, oh, I wanna I wanna get on Pitchfork, and and I couldn't, you know, sometimes you couldn't even get a review, and they would just get bummed out and. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's definitely hard. I've been a part of, like, the worst, like, Antarctica got, like, one of the worst Pitchfork reviews ever. <laughs> you know, like, it, like, had, like, a 2.1, and the guy was just like, fuck this record, you know, like, <laughs> it, but he actually wrote it out like a story. Um, it was some, it, it, do you know the reviewer that, like, there was this one reviewer on Pitchfork that, like, actually went on to do movies, and he was, all of his reviews were, like, narratives. Interesting. Um, do you know who this kid is? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, no. And he actually, like, ended up doing a couple, like, movies that, like, might have been, like, you know, kind of major mo- motion pictures. Um, and he would always, do, instead of writing a review, he'd write the story, like, me and my friend are walking down the street, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, it wouldn't be, we'd read it, and they're like, because no, the Antarctica review, we're reading it, we're like, what the fuck? Like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if he likes it or doesn't like it. And by the end, then he was like, this record sucks. <laughs> like, it's a very less instantly like, fuck. And then, like, and then he looked at the review, like, 2.6, damn. But he basically told us to do something like in order, which is actually probably, that was the only true thing about the whole thing. We actually were, like, kind of on this, you know. That's We're going to play, like, new wave stuff. And, you know, for better or for worse, maybe we were one of the first bands who did that, you know, because that became big later. I don't think it's because of us. We just, you know, luckily we were like one of the first bands to like try to turn like New Order or like uh, Underworld. Or... I remember showing up to like these emo shows, like, and we had all these keyboards set up. You know, like we had MIDI keyboards set up, and these people were like, yeah, it's like you assholes. <laughs> like, what are you doing? We also be like, oh, thanks, Christy Fun Time. There were so many shows, and we could just see, see people looking at the seething. You know, like, you suck. But then, like, five years later, it was, like, the big thing. I'm like, God damn it, I always miss the boat. Yeah. You know, like... Well, that's the thing about, I mean, the, some of the bands that you were probably touring with toward the end. I mean, I wanted to get your take on some of the some of the other bands, you you know, with Christy probably touring. I mean, Promise Ring, I know when we had chatted um, a few weeks ago, you were telling the me that, you know, Davey was, Davey was all about Duran Duran. Oh, Dave, not even Davey, like, it was a Scott Beshta, who was a bass player. Oh, it was a bass player. like, a huge, yeah, no, and that was the guy who eventually got, you know, that's the type of, I don't want to, I want to talk about that too much, because I always, I don't know what happened with that situation. There was a lot of allegations, and which I thought were ridiculous, because I thought Scotty was just the greatest guy ever. Um, but he was a big Duran Duran fan, and when we were on tour with him, he was always searching for, like, Duran Duran singles, and, um... And really, I just, not that I didn't like them later, but like early on, the promising were just the shit when you saw them. Like they were like they were so, like they were so like cool, you know. Like when you see them, like this band is so fucking cool, you know. Like, and we 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 did a couple of tours with them, and 
right before they recorded that first record, and they were just, they were just so great. You know, like, and later, like, maybe I just wasn't, like, into what they were doing later on, and I probably would like it more if I listened to it now, because maybe they were just higher up on the echelon than I was, but, um, God, they were fantastic. Like, early on, like, I remember we, we played live with them, you're like, God, you didn't want to play after them, you know, because they were just so great. Yeah, I mean, just the, those tours. I mean, I, I know we've probably spoken about these tours. I mean, they. I saw Jimmy World open for them, and it was you know that was they were it. And on those tours, did you start seeing people sort of, because they were sort of the more poppy, the more, you know, really hook laden, tight songs. It wasn't angular. It was really direct. So they kind of came out of that. Like I, I remember playing this Detroit fest. One of the like the first times we ever went to the whole East Coast, we ended up playing not in Detroit, but some weird city out of this out of the skirts of Detroit because the Detroit Fest was a big thing for a long time, and um, um, Livonia, Livonia, Michigan—that's where it was—and you had bands like Still Life, and the first time we went there. Uh, Lifetime. I remember seeing Lifetime for the first time. It's the time period. You, they just have this like two day fest, and we ended up playing with Captain Jazz. You know, like and um, and just sitting in this back room with them, like and it was like they, they somehow paid all the bands through like how far they traveled. And so we got like for some reason for some reason just coming from Denver, we were just we got this shitload of money. And I remember always to this day I remember Davey being like, Holy shit getting up in the meeting like you guys are paying these guys four hundred dollars you know. And uh he was like, well, I was like, I don't know, like I have nothing to do with this, you know, like um but it was like, this amazing uh thing. But then I feel like there was a that that scene if you go to Chicago and like um Illinois, you know, the whole like southern Illinois or not, I don't know if it's Southern, but where Champagne, they had a whole other sound there. Like, it was kind of uh, their own thing. And I never understood that sound. But Promising was coming out of that, like, like Cap and Jazz, um, which we went on further with, like, American football and all those man. That sound, because it almost seemed like it was, like, more, like, started by the Kentucky things, like Slint and all those bands. And they had this whole other thing going on there that I didn't, I just didn't understand, but, like, it was cool, though. Like, you know, when you play those bands, like, who are you influenced by, you know? And Promise Ring was one of the first bands, like, that maybe were kind of influenced to me. Like, when I first time I heard them, I thought they were, like, kind of Sunday Day Real Estate-ish. Um, but they also had, like, this weird Chicago, Kentucky thing going on that we didn't understand. I never was influenced by. And so when we would play with them, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like, I never, what a cool sound, you know, just kind of jangly pop. Um, not that Slint was genuinely pop, but like something somehow something came out of that. Like, you know, those bands. There was a great band called Pizza Lake Johnny. Do you guys know those guys? I saw them uh a few times actually. They I never saw bands growing up in Vermont like this they never they never came through unless they were a hardcore band, like sick of it all. And Sweep the Leg Johnny came through and I was awesome. blown away. I bought everything they had yeah. and that was like it was one, I, I probably haven't someone probably hasn't referenced that band in a very long time in and and it's great that you mentioned them it just that that was that totally 
you know, it was direct, but it was had a little curve to it that I don't know if if people haven't checked them out, definitely look 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 them up. They were one of those bands that like seemed to be on something that we weren't, you know, like uh, that they were, you know, they knew something that we didn't know, and it, I don't think they'll never get the credit for it, but I think they started a lot of that uh, angular like mass rock shit in kind of a way. Because I remember even meeting them, just like these are the weirdest dude that ever met. Um, and also, no one them, references they told math this amazing rock story about them being robbed. What? I was just saying, no one mentions math rock anymore. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, it was not, it would, sometimes it doesn't always go hand in hand with emo, but like, it kind of does in some ways. Because if you listen to like Polvo and bands like that, it kind of, it kind of, it mixes, you know. And a lot of a lot of those bands are usually bigger than the emo bands. So like, I think a lot of emo bands would like copy math rock because Slint. I remember once, I would, when you were like in an emo band, or I don't even, I hate saying that because no one considered that at the time, but the bands, like if you listen to like, you know, Promise Ring and Us, everyone, like we listen to bands like the Rachels and um, Fork and that Carnation and Slint and stuff, and like be really influenced by it in some way, because it seemed kind of cooler than what we were doing, you know? Um it was much bigger. I mean, when you first heard that first Slint, right, you know, or not the first one, but the Spider Land, you're just like, wow. You know, like, this is a whole other level of what we're doing in some way. What, and, uh, what you... and I feel like a lot of people were, were, like, copying, not copying, but, like, being influenced by it, especially in the Chicago region. Yeah. yeah. What are you um, kind of, you know, pulling it back into the Chrissy Front Drive-ish type stuff? Because, I mean, obviously, since you guys only existed for a short period of time, um, is there a specific moment or two that kind of sticks out to you where it was like you kind of step back and were like, holy shit, like people are either getting us or like this is an amazing show that we played or, you know, something that kind of like made you really sort of, you know, be shocked at what you were doing? Um, I wouldn't say, I think it's probably happened more now. So I'm still, I'm st- it still amazes me that people give a shit about us. At the time, we would play, you know, because we really weren't greatly appreciated when we were around. I don't think, you know, it's not like we'd go and, like, we, we didn't have easy tours. Like, we would come home with, like, 400 extra dollars and be super happy, you know. Um, maybe, maybe like, playing in Goleta because of the heart attack thing. There was one point where we played a show in Goleta, which we're, I think heart attack was based out of that Santa Barbara, Goleta, California thing. We showed up, like, 400 kids showed up to see us, and it was like, wow. Like, I've never, like, I can't believe all these kids are here to see us today, you know. Um, but it was just small stuff like that. I mean, but now well, that, it just but... amazes me more that we're still talking about it, you know, because it's not like we were, I don't really don't see us as being some, like, amazing band, you know. We just kind of were lucky enough to be part of some weird scene and be at the right place at the right time, you know. That yeah, really amazes me more. Than, like, we're having this conversation right now, amazes me. You know, like, that you even give a shit what I'm talking about. There's here. a crazy guy that has a website. <laughs> no, yeah. the, I, I, I think it is uh, an interesting, I mean, time. I mean, the, you, got, you know, the don't forget to breathe comp stuff. Just, oh, yeah. you know, uh, all those bands, Sunday's Best, Sunny Day, Captain Jazz, like you mentioned, just that scene kind of had this this moment, and you guys were definitely there and and part of it. And I think even just 
the Mineral Connection and obviously Jimmy Eat World. I mean, you're connected to these bands that sort of were out from it, and I think it's, I think that's why. Well, that's cool, yeah. It was a fun time. I mean, like, looking back, it was just it was a lot of luck. And then we just happened to all run into each other. Maybe maybe it wasn't luck. Maybe maybe things are destined to be in some kind of weird way. That, like, you know, certain scenes happen. Everyone just, there's certain, like, stars align at one time period. And um, everyone is just seeing eye to eye for a little bit. And they had that feeling, though. Like, when we, when we were in tour in that time period, it was just, it was just so much fun. It was just so much love, you know, like when you're going around, it was just me. You would just like sleep in people's houses and they would cook you meals. And, um, we would just basically jump in the van and like, you didn't have, it was like a free, free vacation. You know, like if you just played music, you know, like you would, and you would show up and everyone knew each other and like, Oh, and you know, John in Chicago and Seth in South Dakota, like, well, like, we all know each other. And it was like this weird connection between all these people that, like, really, like, deep down, and that's the one thing that doesn't, you know, I'm sure it happens today, because I'm not sure about, like, you know, whatever scenes are going on, but, like, everyone just cared about the music and, like, and maybe there was, and there was a little, like, selfishness and, like, being in the scene, like, I'm punk rock and I look like this and I have a bag on. You know, there was, like, a little bit of that, because that's the funny thing. That's the funniest thing to me about punk rock is, like, everyone tries to be so... Like, we're so outside of the establishment and we're so different, but, like, they all act the same. Like, when you're in, <laughs> like, they're all the same kid when you go, like, you know, from town to town. But the one thing that was there was, like, a love of music, you know? And back then, you don't see much anymore. You know, like, when you would go and play, like, kids would almost start crying when you were playing because they were just so connected to what you were doing. And that was, that was the most amazing part. You know, I remember playing this show in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, the kid, this kid Matt, who ran File 13 Records for a while, and they had a friend of theirs that died in some car accident, and they just kind of like shut down the scene. And we played the first show when they finally decided to start doing shows again in Little Rock. And this, this, the room was just like all these kids who were like kind of remembering this 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 you know friend that died. Of, I, I think he died of a car. It might have been a car accident. It might have been some kind of sickness, but. Either way, we're sitting in this room playing this show, and the kids are in tears. <laughs> you know, and we're like, "What the fuck is going on? Like, are these kids like crazy?" But we realized later that, like, you know, it's like it brought this whole room was just brought together. Like, you—that's one thing a lot of bands will never feel when they're like big, you know, like corporate bands. Like, you're sitting in this room, and like everyone is together in some weird way. It's like this this kinship with everyone in the room. You're playing, and everyone's. It's, it's 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 an amazing feeling. Like it like almost brings you to tears when you're like, like holy shit, why is everyone so into the show? But and that's the way the scene was back then. Like it was like this weird kinship with all these people across the country. Like we all believe in the same thing. We're all against racism. We're all against fascism. And which you know, which sounds fascism sounds stupid, but um, it was like this. Like we're, we felt like we were better than everyone, you know, in some way. Like it was like we kind of got. We got the way things worked that no one else did, you know, that uh, the rest of the world was just like a bunch of robots and we were just actually enjoying life and no one else was, you know, and that was, that was kind of cool, you know, that was a cool feeling, you know, the alienated people, you know. Well, the I think uh, too, it, it kind of leads into, you know, if it's, 
you know, you guys had, had broke up, and then from that, from, you know, 97 on, it was sort of on for this. <laughs> Things kind of broke. Well, I, I mean, I felt like it was, yeah. it definitely broke at some point, and it it kind of took a different, it took a different light. Everything does. I mean, like, the, the problem is when money is introduced, everything changes. You know, and that happens with any scene. Like, if you look at, I mean, Nirvana, like, any of those bands, like, once money is introduced, like, it, the ideals go to the wayside, you know, and not for, you know, I'm not blaming anyone for that, you know, like, but it takes, like, even take country music, you know, like, country music was a very important, like, very interesting, like, cultural phenomenon, but then once people start getting paid, it just turned into shit, you know, and that's the way everything happens, you know, like, even like uh, maybe the lecture clash scene in New York was kind of cool. One point, I don't know. I, I have no idea where those kids were coming from. But like once money is introduced, everything turns to shit for some reason. You know, like because you can't really. It's really hard to mix money and art. You know, because once you mix it, I don't know what it is. It just it seems to like kill the art for some reason in some odd way. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but. No, I, I think I think the scene, you know, there were bands that were, you started to see the buses, and you started to see sort of the complaining, you started to see the 15 merch designs, and it's not a problem that they're trying to make money off it, it just, it, it, it started to get bigger, it started to have more people, the, you know, certain other groups of people started uh, listening to it, so, yeah, I, 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 I feel the hardest part of it. So that's the hardest, it's the hard part of it because for me, like, I'm actually, and I'm not trying to be like, I'm this, like, I'm better than everyone else sort of thing. Like, because I actually think my, the way I think is probably like, it's probably not a, not really, it's probably, I'm trying to think of ways without offending people, but I mean, it's, it's probably hurt me more than helped me. That like, I, I hate when art, turns into, like, a money-making sort of, like... Like, and I, I know, and I, I just don't want to offend friends who have done it. You know, I just... I, there's something about, like, when, it, when the two mix together, like, there's something that the heart leaves somewhere. You know, like, it, like it, it kind of drains. And then everyone's worrying about their, how much money they're making. And, um... It's like when the bands are going to major labels, it's like, we just want to write some hits, we want to see this label, and we get this, like, and then, like, all of a sudden, like, what they were doing before, like, that was, why people liked them in the first place is gone. You know, like, is why you love Jawbreaker is because when you listen to the records, you're like, God, this fucking hit me so hard, you know, like, emotionally hit me. But then when they're, like, writing hits, you're like, well, it's not the songs are bad, but you, it, I don't, there's something about it, like, and it, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to put your finger on because I think some people have pulled it off and done it both ways. But the problem is, I feel like a lot of labels go into scenes that have like this, you know, some heart to it, and they just rape it and like kill it in some way, you know. Like we're we're gonna start introducing money, and like, cause most people will take money. I mean, like, no one's stupid, you know. Like, I would rather make money than not, you know. Like, I would like to like have money to buy records and. And but they take these kids who are like really doing it for the right reasons, and like once you start offering them money, like it kind of kind of gets killed in some way. It's a weird thing. Like money has this weird ability just to kill um, heart in some way. 
Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I would I would have been just as, you know, I think I would have fallen for the same thing. I'm not saying I wouldn't have. If someone says, like, here's a million dollars, I don't know what I would have done, you know? <laughs> Well, the I think I wanted to bring up is too is you know you guys breaking up, you've got this time frame and then the reunion in '07. What yeah. was the feeling coming back playing that show? I saw some video of it. I mean, it looked like such a you know you guys were having fun and what? Oh, the blast! Yeah. yeah, it was a punk rock. You know, like these these really cool kids, and it kind of stemmed from that whole like. Um, I felt like one of our biggest fans and member was uh, Jared from. Uh, um, planes mistaken for stars, you know, like he was like one of those kids that like saw us in Denver. His name is Jared, right? Um, am I getting the name wrong? No, you're right. But um, he was like part of that Denver scene, and and it was kind of like the Denver, like the Denver Fest was kind of like a offshoot of like the the Fest in Florida, the um, Gainesville Fest. Fest, you know, no idea thing, and so like. They would have another one, but they were like, we should have a that place. So, like, we basically just we'll fly you out, just play the show. And But it had this great feel of, like, you know, like everyone was just, it was appreciative. No one was making money off of it. And, you know, like, it was, we would just like to see you play these songs one more time, you know. Um, which actually ends up spurring us into playing more because we end up realizing we love playing with each other, you know. Um, but it was a blast. I mean, I know, that show was amazing, you know. When you're sitting there playing with people, appreciating what you're doing, it was actually like, I've never, we've never played a show like that where like people are just like, we're so excited to see you, right? Besides Brooklyn, that was the other show that was, you know, that doesn't happen very often. I mean, that, yeah. end, that end of the Brooklyn show, I mean, it was just to have those people there waiting and, and wanting to say hi and have these moments, and I was one of them, and, and I think that was such a beautiful thing, um, you know, to have oh, that happen. It was It was awesome. Yeah, we had a great time. I mean, when you can sit there and play music that you love and then, like, have, like, you know, these cool people in the crowd just, like, you know, just, like, they actually appreciate what you're doing and get it, it's, it's a huge thing because, I mean, when you're playing, you just feel it. It just felt like the old days when you're playing to these people and everyone's emotionally tied to each, to each other. And people were there from all of the time. Like, era. I mean, uh, Texas, uh, Reason was there, guy from Boy's Life was there. It just, yeah. it seemed like everyone kind of came out to the show, <laughs> like yeah. we used to. <laughs> well, I think we all love each other in some weird odd way, you know, like, because we were all a part of something that, like, a lot of people weren't, you know. And, you know, it's, it's cool, you know, like that, and it's still appreciated, but, like, it's almost like, you know, how celebrities become, and I'm not saying we're celebrities, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I'm just saying, like, when you're a part of, it would be the same thing with, like, a boot camp. You become really close friends with someone in a boot camp, you know, like, because you went through the same thing, you know. Like, we all had the same experience of, like, playing these shows in people's basements, and, and you you know, there's a kinship there with that, you know. Like, we were all together, and, like, for better or for worse, we just played these shows, and, had a great, you know, it was mostly better because we had such a great time, you know. So, because I didn't go to college, like, and I did a little college, but I don't think it's when on tour, and like, for me, it's almost like my college buddies in some way, you know. Like, when I see those people, like, the people that we, you know, we did these tours with and played with and hung out with, and it was like, that was my college friends for me, you know. 
in a lot of ways. But it was almost cooler than college because we were actually like doing something, you know, that we weren't paying our ass with the money to, you know, <laughs> getting to some shitty job later. You know, like, I don't know. We were like, actually, like, there was something we were, we were doing that was kind of important at the time, you know? It felt like culturally important in some way. And then you guys got to play, you know, Jimmy World asked you guys to play on the Bleed American tour, which is, you know, that connection is still there. And was there anything fun from that trip that kind of stuck out? And this was a couple months ago, right? Or was it a month ago? Yes. Yeah. It was just, uh, we just did a long show in LA. And uh, it was fun. But, you know, at the same time, I realized we don't really mix with the Jimmy World crowd. So you kind of just look at it like we were crazy. <laughs> it was one of like, this is our last show. And then, you know, a lot of clapping when we said that. But like, uh, there was a few kids. <laughs> yeah. and, I was, and I was like, I know, it's our last, like, you guys want to watch Jimmy role play. I said, I don't blame them. Because I've been to many shows, you're like, I don't want to see the opening. <laughs> but, you know, like, and like, you know, we remember that thing where like, most people were like, holy shit, Chris, you want to try something? You know, like, there's like, you know, 20 people in each town and like give a shit about us. You know, so, well, I was I was going to um, say you guys should have played the Static Prevails tour because then we're old enough where those kids would have got you but the Bleed American tour is a lot of, you know, that was their crossover so a lot of the, the uh, fraternity kids um, in that era um, were out there so maybe that was why but that that that's funny if you're like hey, so we got a couple more and then everyone starts clapping. So. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we didn't have that. We did, like, that night, we didn't have that at all. It was awkward. And I, I realized I hate playing on large stages. Like, it just doesn't... I like... When it comes down to it, I, when you're playing in, like, in a basement, and there's just people in front of you, and the place is just kind of moving together, those are, like... I like... I love that, you know? Like, and they're sitting there, like, 10 feet above people, and they're just sitting there staring at you like you're crazy. And, you know, maybe I'm sure it's different for Jimmy World, you know, because... They're just so loved, you know, like, maybe, like, even at that point, it would be enjoyable, but I hate it. I hate playing on large stages with, like, you know, like a big sound, and it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel real to me in some way. It feels like I'm in some weird, like, in big windows or something when I'm up there, you know. There's nothing worse than having, like, two thousand people sitting there staring at you like you're stupid, you know, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it's horrible, you know, it's like a wonder, like a nightmare. And some people, you see some people getting India playing, and like, for the most part, you're just like, people are staring at you like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, when is Jimmy Rule coming in? Yeah. You know, so. That's okay. But it was fun, though. I mean, that trip to L.A. was amazing. I mean, I always loved a trip somewhere, you know? Totally. I mean, and just that <laughs> connection was still there. I mean, they wanted you to play the show. Wow. They could have had, any, they the had about, anybody. Yeah. The thing about Jimmy World, like, as big as they've gotten, they're just like, Deep down, they're just good dudes. You know, like they're they were never like I don't think they were ever like really bought into the punk rock thing that much. I think they really did want to be there where they are now. But like they're just like four regular guys. You know, like they're not like rock star pricks. You know, like they're just like four guys who meet in Arizona in a bar somewhere. You know, and that's the cool thing about them. And that's why I've always been happy that they've been big because like I I can't say a bad thing about any of them. You know, like they're just some good you know, good people, you know, and they just, they're lucky, they realize they're lucky to be where they are, they don't take it too seriously, and they're just good guys, you know, like, and, and plus just phenomenal songwriters, you know, like, I mean, those records are really good, you know, like, 
and uh, they don't take it too seriously. They're just, they're cool. They're cool dudes, you know. And uh, I, even when you see them now, they're they're great guys. Like you know, like I'm sitting there drinking whiskey. Like Rick, the bass player, like makes his own whiskey now, and you're sitting there like just getting drunk with him on his own whiskey and stuff. You're like, you guys are fantastic, you know. They're actually doing the right thing. They're just enjoying it, you know. Because um, they know, like, they realize where they are. Like, they know they could go away at any time. And they're just like, we're really fucking lucky. And, like, we're just enjoying it, you know? That's awesome. Well, for you guys, I mean, for you, is it, I mean, you've had a bunch of bands after. And you're obviously still wanting to make music. And um, is that still a passion that you still want to do? And will there be more Christy Front Drive shows? Oh. Or? Not really Christy Front Drive. But, like, I, I write music constantly. I mean... I'm one of those people that has a song in my head at all times. You know, like when I wake up in the morning, I have a, I've heard this explained to other people before, but I have like a radio station in my head, like at all times. And I just heard that recently because I was listening, I was listening to this interview with uh, Howard Stern and uh, whatever the lead singer Coldplay's name is, you know. Chris Martin. Not my, yeah, whatever, yeah. And, uh,. And there is one thing that people who write songs, you really do have, like, this radio station on in your head all the time that, like, you just keep hearing music. Like, when I wake up in the morning, there's usually music going on in my head. And, um, you know, unfortunately, mine haven't, my songs haven't made a million dollars. I have these, like, piece of shit songs that do nothing. But, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I, uh, I have to, like, I have to keep writing and I have to get them out of my head in some way because it really is aggravating. You know, like, it's almost like, Minions having some kind of like a disability in some weird way. So like I get up and like I have to write songs, you know. And so to this point, I need to write, keep writing in some way. And I'm hoping at one point that I actually do something great, you know. Like Crazy Frontier, you know. Like I'm really appreciative it's done well, but I I still feel like I have something great in me, maybe. You know that I I would I would like to die when I die. I would like to like have one of those records. And you're like this record was fucking awesome. You know, like, it was, you know, it changed, you know, something, you know. I mean, Christy Franzad was just, you know, it was cool, but I still feel like I might have something better in me. And uh, I, I'm going to keep striving to that until I die, I think, because I have to. <laughs> well, I, like, I, you know? I think that's a great way of looking at it, and it's that's really poignant. I, I think that's awesome. Like That's actually something I tell every band when I go up to them I don't really, there's I used to be able to get a, a radio ID because I worked at a college radio station and that was my way to talk to them for five seconds but now it's if I do get a moment and I feel like I need to say something it's keep playing music like I, I remember telling Chris Simpson that from when he was when I saw him with Zookeeper I just said I love your stuff can you just keep making music because right, well, people like amazing it. At it but it goes with any profession like there's people who write there's people who are teachers there's people and like they all have like if you have this feeling like you can do something great like in writers like it happens more in arts maybe because I mean you know teaching because I'm not really a teacher per se you know like I teach but there's teachers who are like have this great feeling of like I'm going to do something I'm going to really change some people's lives and if you have that feeling you got to keep doing it you know like or you know anyone who writes you know, you know, because I know Tom like writes a lot, and like it's just like you. I'm sure everyone who does it passionately is like, I have something great in me, you know. And like you have to keep doing it until you feel like you've reached whatever that is that's great in you. And it happens, and no matter what you're good at, like if you're a mathematician, like I'm gonna solve, you know, the, you know, when they solve like what was that whole thing with the donut? With the, uh, um, they somehow. 
there was something with mathematicians. They're always trying to figure out the the um, equation of a donut because of like the roundness and like and some guy dedicated his whole life to it, you know, and and actually went crazy from it, you know, and like you know, it's it, no matter what you you have to find something you love and just try to be as good as you can, you know. I think that's one of the most important things of life, you know. You gotta find some kind of it's like the Joseph Campbell find your bliss, but try to do it great, you know, in some kind of way. And I'm still, I'm still chasing that, you know. Like in some ways, I would like to, I would like to die and be like someone said, that, you know, the greatest thing ever. You know? <laughs> I love that.
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1, so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.